We return to our interview with an archived clip of Bringing Light into Darkness and our guest, Andres Arauz. We are really blessed to have Andres Arauz, a former Minister of Knowledge of Ecuador and a former Central Bank Director during President Rafael Correa's administration from 2006-2017. Was that administration or approximately that 10-year period? So, Andres, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Hi, uh, thank you very much, Pedro, for having me here. It's a pleasure to share with your audience in Austin. We begin the interview with our guest describing the repression in Ecuador in the moment of the interview. This past month, there's been a increased demonstrations and such against the sitting president, Ecuadorian President Lenin Moreno. Just yesterday, the talks with the leaders of Ecuador's indigenous peoples occurred, or some of the leaders and such, and there were uh, basically this whole issue has so much to do with these austerity measures that are increasingly tightening the belt in Ecuador, and they're being promoted as part of a deal to get billions of dollars, some four plus billions of dollars from the IMF. And I guess, I guess, Andres, just to, to start off with, I know that you're very close to so many people that are still in Ecuador. Can you kind of give us an update as to what is occurring? It seems to me that even though that there was a, an agreement reached of sorts about backing off of this, of this uh, fuel uh, subsidy issue, there still continues to be incarcerations and you know, loss of due process type of things to, to the average folks that, that are down there that are protesting um, these, these uh, uh, deteriorating living conditions that, that Moreno has, has brought since, since the last administration of Carrillo. Can you, can you speak to what's going on on the ground for us? Right. So the situation uh, right now in Ecuador is not good. It's very problematic. We have a lot of arbitrary detentions going on as we speak. Uh, a lot of people are seeking asylum in different embassies uh, in the city, capital city of Quito. And the different embassies have uh, reinforced their security to receive dozens of Ecuadorian social leaders and political leaders that have been politically persecuted by the de facto government of Lenin Moreno in the last week or so. The situation is critical. A lot of uh, what we are doing right now is trying to engage with governments uh, around the world so that they can give protection to social leaders in different embassies uh, throughout Quito. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are under complete military militarization of the capital city. The president of Ecuador decreed uh, two days ago the complete militarization of the city with uh, what's called toque de queda in Spanish, which is a 70s military term. It's not a judicial or legal or any uh, or a political term. It's a, it's a term that has been brought back from the dictatorships of the 70s, which basically means that uh, people uh, cannot be on the street after a certain time uh, or else martial law can be applied, uh, which means the threat of assassination to the entire population of Quito. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even though this has been decreed, the city, the, the citizens have uh, protested uh, on the streets at night uh, by hitting the empty airports uh, to denounce arbitrary treatment of society's freedoms by the despotic government of, of Lenin Moreno. Uh, yesterday, there was a, an important meeting 
between the president and the authorities of the state uh, with uh, some of the leaders of the indigenous movement to discuss the austerity measures, specifically the price, uh, the hike and the price of diesel and of gas that occurred uh, almost two weeks ago. And it seemed that an agreement was reached around 10 p.m. last night, but uh, the, the, the agreement was... Uh, poorly worded or rather intelligently worded in the sense that the indigenous movement considered that the government was going to roll back the decree but immediately the government announced that they are going to roll back the decree but only as part of of issuing another decree mm-hmm. that would only define certain compensatory measures for the indigenous peoples to try to compensate them for the hike in the price of of diesel. And this was not well received by some of the indigenous leaders. Some videos of the negotiations were leaked and uh, made a scandal last night. Uh, But it appears that the government's take on the agreement is the one that prevails. The indigenous movement has uh, withdrawn from the capital city but the decree has not been issued. That means that the prices are still high. There has been no change in the policy up to this moment. Uh, I checked the, the website a few uh, minutes ago where the decrees are published and the executive decree has not been published. So uh, the citizens of Ecuador are becoming very worried that it has been uh, a treason. Basically, he tricked the indigenous movement into mm-hmm. demobilizing but will not change the policy. And why not? Because if you take a more structural reading, uh, the government has to apply the entire conditionality program uh, demanded by the International Monetary Fund, especially considering that the IMF is meeting today in Washington, D.C., in in one of their semester fall meetings that occur every six months. So the the situation for the government is clear. It, It will not back down. And if it does, it will be only with compensatory measures because while they may have bought time with the protests in Ecuador, they still have the pressure and the demands from the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C. Later in the interview, we ask, was there an absolute necessity, as is being broadcast in all of our major media now, that Moreno had to go to the IMF to get some type of economic relief? Well, the answer is absolutely not. There was no need, no urgent need, no pressing need to seek the IMF loan. The purpose of going to the IMF in the case of Ecuador that did not have a balance of payments crisis, that did not have a fiscal crisis, that did not have a financial system crisis of any sorts when Moreno uh, went to the IMF, was the objective was to what I call anchor the economic policy of Ecuador for the next decade or so, right? So it was a medium-term, ideologically driven pursuit of going to the IMF because they are aware that that is the only way that they can get these conditionalities to stick in time and that uh, the next government, whatever it may be, whether a center-right or a center-left government, would have to, would be sort of hijacked by the IMF as were some of the European countries in the Eurozone crisis in in the last decade. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a way to promote a capitalist, especially financial capitalist-driven 
uh, agenda to overhaul the development model of Ecuador that was built during the Correa government. Now, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, uh, Correa also faced economic difficulties uh, once in 2009 and then later in 2016 when the earthquake and we had massive drop in the price of oil and depreciation by our neighbors that Ecuador can't do because it has the US dollar as its official currency. So uh, what uh, Correa did was actually to push for measures, but they were not austerity measures. They were counter cyclical measures. It was an increase in government spending, in social security uh, handouts, in subsidies for the population so as not to be affected by the macroeconomic situation. Uh, and it was all financed by specific taxes, basically on the richest segments of the population. Mm -hmm. Specific taxes on offshore companies, for example, specific taxes on the fortunes of larger than a million dollars, uh, specific taxes on imports, special tariffs, so that luxury goods would have to pay uh, more. And this was hardly the, the solution to finance uh, all this increase in, in public spending, which uh, in, the, in, the, in the longer run was also good investment because it implied building schools, building uh, hospitals, building roads and hydroelectric power plants. That also had a, what we may call a, a Keynesian effect of just having more money around in the economy, you know, and and that was a, an improvement for society that compensated the uh, drop in the in the price of oil. Mm -hmm. So the, there are many alternatives to to do this. For example, Correa decided that the central bank should not have independence. It was, this was decided in 2008 in the Ecuadorian new constitution. So the central bank was at the service of the people and helped to finance some of the needs of the treasury, uh, of the government, so to pursue this fiscal spending. Now the Moreno government, before going to the IMF, passed a law that forbid himself from obtaining financing from within the country. So of course, mm -hmm. if he had any sort of shortfall, he had to knock on the door of the external creditors, basically Wall Street and in this case, the Washington-based institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and the Inter-American Development one other thing I wanted you to elaborate on, you said the central bank, I think it was the, the new constitution, if I remember correctly, was like 2008 under Correa, yeah. and the central bank was previously independent. And so there was a, in this referendum, this constitutional referendum, it was now made part of the government's economic team. In other words, at the disposal of the government of the people, if, if it really is interested in the majority population. And again, I, I just want to take a step back to kind of solve these riddles and see what's really going on. Look at how the majority population's welfare is before the Korea administration and then after, just as we saw it in Honduras, before the Zelaya administration and then after the coup that removed Zelaya that was promoted or at least enabled by the West and such. And you see the same type of thing. You see measurable improvements for the majority population, but I guess you're not getting as much investment profit from investment capital and these big interests that seem to be more represented by the IMF. Am I generalizing too much or does the IMF seem to be more on the side of making investment capital get you know, the largest return for its buck while trying to keep things stabilized enough to have an economy? Right, so uh, I, I would disagree a little bit on the final part, but also uh, on another part you mentioned that I think it's important to clarify 
the issue or in the role of debt, right? So, mm-hmm. and debt per se is is not bad. It depends who you owe the money to. So, mm-hmm. in the case of the Korea government, debt was mostly owed to the government itself, to another branch of government, which is the Central Bank of Ecuador, which is a state-owned institution. So, if you owe yourself the money, it's not that bad because. <laughs> You can renegotiate that, those conditions within the domestic political conditions, mm-hmm. and, and especially if it's not an independent institution, uh, then you can have a, what's called a fiscal and monetary coordination instead of fiscal and monetary disagreement. So uh, that's a very important clarification because in the case of, of Moreno, it is the Moreno government that has increased foreign debt that which you cannot control, that which is hierarchically above in terms of power structures, in terms of uh, capacity of political maneuvering and influence and so forth. Mm-hmm. You can't compare a small country with a big Wall Street bank, for example. So uh, that, that situation is very important uh, to distinguish. And sometimes analysts talk about overall debt and do not distinguish between foreign debt and uh, domestic uh, central bank debt or domestic debt in general. So you're, you're juxtaposing domestic debt when you owe it to yourself to the foreign debt that generally comes when you're, when you're dealing with international lending institutions. And Wall Street institutions, yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is uh, the fact that the IMF, even though they are ideologically, of course, much closer to investment capital, whether it be domestic or foreign, the fact of the matter is that the companies, so businesses, large companies even, are earning much less during the uh, Moreno government than with the uh, Correa government. Because a prosperous economy in terms of the citizens, I mean, in terms of purchasing power of the Ecuadorian citizens, also meant that the companies had uh, good revenues. You know, they sold more because uh, there were people who were willing to buy more because they had money in their pockets. Uh, But with the Moreno administration, with severe austerity measures of basically cutting completely public investment, capital expenditures by the government, now the citizens have less money in their pockets and businesses are also failing. And and of course, poverty because of layoffs are occurring and so forth. Uh, So even though the IMF, let's say, is ideologically closer to uh, investment capital, uh, the fact that they, you know, basically kill the economy also ends up killing these businesses, with one major exception in the case of Ecuador and the Moreno government, and it is the banks, right? So uh, domestic Uh banks and foreign banks have record earnings, record profits, record revenue, because they are basically extracting the wealth from the citizens into the bank's uh, profits, uh, Mm -hmm. both domestically and abroad when the government and the citizens have to pay interest on the loans of the external debt. So that is a very important uh, distinction also that I wanted to to make. Very, very good. Listen, I want to just remind our listeners, we're, we're talking with the esteemed economist Andres Arauz. He's a former Minister of Knowledge of Ecuador and a former Central Bank Director during Rafael Correa's administration. Uh, he's currently based in Mexico City from where we're talking with him, working as a doctoral fellow in financial economics at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Andres, let me ask you, so when we, when we look at these more progressive governments, uh, such as President Carrillo's decade in power there and such, 
One of the things that seems to occur and the greatest threat to livelihood I, I've come to recognize for the majority population is this, is this incredibly disparate ratio of, of wealth. And, and with this Gini uh, index, under, from 2006 to 2016, it went from 0.55 to 0.47, which I guess is some 15% or more reduction in this kind of economic wealth inequality and such. And then uh, from 2017 in June to June of 2019, under uh, Moreno's policies, it's rising again from 0.462 to 0.478. My, my question is this is when you look at a change in this kind of wealth distribution and such, these numbers don't mean a whole lot when you just look at them. Can you talk a little bit about the the significance of them and and if they, in fact, do include the public, when you have greater public spending and those types of things for health issues or education issues, is that actually translated into the Gini coefficient as well? Of course, yeah. So, of course. So this this can be explained simply by analyzing – the money in the pockets of, of the Ecuadorian population, the overall majority. So before the Correa government, they had to pay for public school, right? For public education, it was public, but it was not free. People had to pay a certain amount, around $35 a month, which for people who are living under a dollar a day, it was basically giving away the entire income. So uh, kids wouldn't go to, to school. They would instead go to work to try to earn some money to help their family. And also, healthcare was not free, even though it was public. And people would have to spend their money, which was very little, to try to overcome sickness and injury. And of course, this was not fair for the poorest population either. And the other issues were, you know, salaries. The wages were extremely low in Ecuador before the Correa government. And they averaged... The minimum wage for what are called domestic servants was uh, less than $80 a month. And for workers, it was $180 a month. Now, with the Correa government, everything that I mentioned changed. Wages went up uh, significantly, up to $400 a a month. With Social Security uh, for everybody, it became a crime not to uh, pay into Social Security by the employer. Uh, also, the public education system got all of the funding it needed, and it forbid people to pay into the into the public education system, and likewise for healthcare. So, besides uh, receiving these benefits, you know that actually means kids can actually go to school now. The sick can be actually uh, attended to in the public health system, and people had a more decent uh, conditions, all including for retirement. Besides these actually uh, public goods, public services, and they also saved money. Mm-hmm. And so they could uh, use this money uh, for other purposes, either to increase their economic opportunities or to increase their nutrition or their housing and so forth. And of course, that also helped the economy. So uh, overall, uh, this is how the inequality went, went down. Now, this is at the bottom of the pyramid. But at the top of the pyramid, there were also some measures to redistribute sources from the richest parts of the population by especially uh, not increasing taxes, but by erasing tax loopholes from the legislation, right? Mm-hmm. By, allow- by actually uh, going there and uh, auditing the firms and looking for hideouts and loopholes and actually uh, making them pay their taxes, pay their fair share. 
So, of course, uh, there was also a redistribution, not only in the bottom of the pyramid with better spending, but also at the top by better taxes and some key redistributive measures like certain uh, banana tycoons that had avoided taxes for a decade. And the tax administration, for example, decided to sell its uh, banana farms and to give the, the farm away to uh, workers to create worker co-op, uh, worker-owned uh, banana plantation, for example. And there are several of those examples. Uh, there were not that many, but were very symbolic in, in the sense that they demonstrate, they have a demonstration effect over the richest segments of the population. Now, this is what elites hated because uh, of the demonstration effect. And uh, they uh, do not forgive Correa for, for doing that, obviously. And right now what we're having in Ecuador is an extremely hate-driven agenda. Uh, I could even uh, go on to call it the fascist agenda. That implies uh, basically what they have called the annihilation of the leftists uh, or the progressive movement in Ecuador. There has been a whole slew of former Correa political allies and government representatives that have been imprisoned by this administration of Moreno's. Uh, and not just the former vice president, but there are just a bunch of examples in which people are being arrested, at least reportedly, without any type of, of substantive evidence being presented for the arrest and being detained. This is, it's almost like it's a form of frivolous charges. In, in other words, you know what a frivolous lawsuit is when you, is, is when you file a lawsuit with really no merit. And, and if you're going after your opposition, well, in this case, it looks like they're just putting them in jail without any merit either. So it's very scary to me that you started the show off today by saying that the president, Moreno, agreed through a lengthy discussion with indigenous leaders to reinstate this uh, subsidy for oil that still has not occurred. And at the same time, this morning when I woke up and was looking at some of reports from, from Ecuador, activists were being woken up and being you know, kind of dragged off. In fact, one, one woman, I forget her name or whatever, but she's like a, a perfect in, um, in one of the provinces actually Facebooked it or whatever. And I guess that's my, that's my question to you. When you mention the word, it's kind of almost moving not just towards an annihilation of the opposition, more, but more in a, almost like a fascist way. This seems to me to be the, the, a major tool is just, just imprisoning people left and right without due process and charges. Is this something that just looks that way from where I'm sitting? Or is that something that's also confirmed from your experience over the last 48 to hours to last, you know, since the beginning of the month, I guess? Yeah, this is what, what's happening since the beginning of the protests. We've had over a thousand people detained. 70% of those were liberated within the next few hours because the judges said there is no accusation here. I mean, there is no, it's all a frivolous charge, so people have to let go. Uh, so this is what's happened in the context of the protests. Now they are accusing our activists and political leaders of sedition, of rebellion, of terrorism, and so forth. And of course, we are under a state of exception in martial law. So even the judges are scared now to, to go against the, the government's will. And of course, that, that is a risk for all of us. But this is not new, unfortunately. And there have been charges presented against several of Correa loyalists over the past months, over the past year even. And uh, in some cases, the people have left the country 
and the government has issued what are called Interpol red alerts, Interpol red alerts. That means that they should catch these people, our friends, uh, our comrades, uh, elsewhere around the world, right? Whether it be in Europe, in the US. And in all of the cases, Interpol has rejected the red alert because it claims that the due process was violated by the government, by the Justice Administration, and they are not going to issue these red alerts. And on the contrary, they have supported asylum requests of our uh, loyalists, our Korea loyalists or leftists in different countries around the world, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> here we have an objective measure uh, that shows you that Interpol says, hey, you know, these are absurd charges. We are not going to go after these people. You are just basically doing what's called the political persecution. Mm-hmm. So they rejected the, gov- the Korean government's demands based on uh, human rights grounds. Yeah, unfortunately, in our country, we just get such information inundated and so much of that information is left out that we don't see it. I think the last thing that's also worthy of mentioning and having you speak to has to do with, we just went through and you just went through a list of the improvements that occurred under the 10 years of the Korea administration. And under Moreno, poverty and inequality have risen under his tenure. Structural poverty has increased several percent. The extreme poverty has seen a rise by over 10%, et cetera, et cetera. We talked about the Gini coefficient already getting worse under him. Yet he has the gall to be blaming all of these problems of why people are uh, so upset, which are obviously right in front of us. We just went through the reasons on Careo, who's thousands of miles away. So can you explain this defense that he's putting forth, Moreno, and he's not just—he's not just claiming it's Careo. He's—he's blaming everyone that's ever been connected to him, and I think that's why these arrests are occurring. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, of course. This is a complete act of political persecution, and that is why all of these embassies that I mentioned—I uh, can't uh, say the exact names of of what the countries are uh, for now—but the embassies are witnesses of the political mm-hmm. persecution, the arbitrary detentions. And so they are harboring Ecuadorian uh, dissenters uh, all over the, the capital city. This is, this is not something that we say. This is recognized by the international community, uh, as I just uh, mentioned. Thank you very, very much for making time to be with us tonight. And we will hopefully have you back on in the future when things are, are better for the majority population down there in, in uh, Ecuador. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your solidarity and thank you for giving attention to this. And take care. Very, very good. Thank you. Okay, so that was Andres Arroz. He's the former minister of knowledge of Ecuador and a former central bank director during the uh, Rafael Carreas administration. He was at the central bank. He worked with cooperatives to democratize the national payment system in Ecuador and designed the first central bank that issued a digital currency. Anyhow, he has been very kind enough to be on the phone with us today. We had set this up and then things just really took a turn for the worst, as you heard from his own words and such. So that again was Andres um, Arauz. That ends our excerpt from our Andres Arauz interview back on October 14th, 2019. And as you hear this show in this moment, my hope is he's the new president of Ecuador. See you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait.